large, I'm Ludded Lopate. The Ku Klux Klan was formed by six white war veterans in a small town in Tennessee during Reconstruction in 1866, and within two years its membership had grown to one-half million in every province of the former Confederacy. The 1920s marked the second coming of the KKK, and that's the subject of a book called A Fever in the Heartland, the Ku Klux Klan's plot to take over America and the woman who stopped them. It's the latest book by Pulitzer and National Book Award-winning author Timothy Egan. It's published by Viking, and it brings Timothy Egan to our show now. Welcome. There we go. Hello. Hi. Hi. Oh, here we go. Okay, sorry. Modern technology. In the, <laughs> the old yeah. days, you would have been in the studio with me. Right. I'm in the heartland right now, uh, touring on behalf of a fever in the heartland. Anyway, I don't know if you heard the introduction, but the, the KKK yes. began in the Deep South. Didn't the Confederacy veterans use terrorism, physical assault, and murder against politically active black people and their allies in the South? Yeah. And how I long mean, did that go on? Yeah, uh, the amazing thing is, I mean, the Ku Klux Klan is America's oldest domestic terror group, and uh, its original incarnation was just pure violence directed at black people, and it was a result, a reaction to a startling fact that 36% of the people living in the American South, the old Confederacy, had gone almost overnight from being enslaved human property hmm. to being citizens. So the Klan was a reaction to that. And they, you know, they they marauded, they raped, they night rode, they burned people, they iron-branded their foreheads. It was a total 100% active terror group and only put down when um, President Grant, who should get his due, by the way, and did in Ron Chernow's book on Grant, um, Grant declared him, you know, the most egregious, violent, anti-American group to ever to sit, take foot on American soil. And he crushed them. He crushed them. He put five. He used the federal plans. government to suppress them. Exactly. And he sent troops to the south and he, he actually imposed martial law in several counties to crush this terror group. So by 1872, the original Klan formed by these six ex-Confederate officers, which was rampaging, marauding throughout the South, was essentially gone. I mean, they went underground. They burned their records. They declared that uh, they were no longer an active organization. Well, how relevant was the release of D.W. Griffith's 1915 silent film, The Birth of a Nation, and Woodrow Wilson's decision to screen that film in, in the White House? Was that a factor? Oh, my God. <laughs> the Birth of a Nation, which came out in 1915 and was a, an extravaganza, was seen by one in four Americans. That is about 25 million Americans. It played very well in the North as well as the South. It played to pack theaters. And it was an absolute propaganda set piece. And that was the intention of Griffith when he, he said, I want to rewrite the narrative on what happened in, uh, the, in Reconstruction. So he portrayed... Northerners as all carpetbaggers, you know, uh, oppressing these innocent Southerners. He had African-American legislators shown with bare feet and shucking chicken bones into the aisles of the chambers of the legislature and drinking whiskey. Um, he had the Klan as heroic, this Klan that had been crushed by Grant 50 years earlier in Griffith's film, Road to the Rescue. And, you know, helped white womanhood, helped innocent Southerners throw off the yoke of Reconstruction South. Now, he said he, it was the first film to play in the White House. And thank you for noting that. Woodrow Wilson's White, White House. But he's, Woodrow he Wilson said, who also segregated the White House and, and Washington in general. So it, it was kind absolutely. of a return to. Wilson, Wilson was the first Southerner to occupy the White House since the Civil War. He did segregate. He had, in some cases, people, uh, D.C. federal workers were in what were essentially cages, little bars that separated them from the white workers. But um, Griffith said he his whole intent of this film was to rewrite the narrative. And it did that. So that set the stage for people in the North to accept the rebirth of the Klan in the 1920s. So didn't the second Klan seek and largely achieve an appeal beyond the old Confederacy? Uh, yeah. And, Leonard, but they also expanded the set of resentments, didn't they? I would call it expanded the range of hatreds. Mm, okay. And it was a reaction to what was going on in America 100 years ago. And if you really want to understand the 2020s, 
you have to understand the 1920s, an age that I think has been somewhat mischaracterizes all Gatsby frivolity and jazz age. Yeah, the stuff. roaring the 20s, the jazz age. Yeah, Great and jazz. it was. I mean, don't get me wrong, there was plenty of jazz and plenty of roaring, but there was also the extraordinary rise of this terror group. They, at their peak, had up to six million Americans who put their hand on a Bible and swore an oath to white supremacy. Now, to your question, Leonard, their range of hatreds expanded to include Jews, because there was peak of Jewish immigration primarily from Eastern Europe, places like what is now Ukraine, where my wife's family is from, Poland, Eastern Eastern Germany, parts of Russia. Two million Jews came to this country in the first 20 years of the 20th century. That set the stage for the Klan's range of hatreds against them. But also Roman Catholics, immigrants in general, and of course, black people. Yeah, they hated Roman Catholics because the, the new Roman Catholics coming to this country were primarily Sicilians, and they were somewhat dark-skinned, and they didn't speak the language, and the Klan you know, thought they were part of some plot by the Pope. So they, they hated Roman Catholics, they hated immigrants, and of course they hated blacks. Now, their goal in the 20s was to move Jim Crow, which was, by the way, locked down in the South, backed by a Supreme Court decision where only one justice dissented, to move Jim Crow to the North. And it, and uh, the people who joined the Klan were often people we might think are respectable, ministers, politicians, judges, policemen, bankers, businessmen. And they said that Protestants were being replaced by insane, diseased Catholics, Jews, immigrants, and, and blacks. Yeah, so that's one of the strange and, and things. They, weren't they also concerned about modernity? Yeah, so that was, I, I didn't finish my point, and I'm sorry. Their other range of hatreds was against socially liberated women. So remember, in 1920, we passed, prohibition came into effect, which was the largest rollback, first time the Constitution had been amended to take away a right. But at the same time, we granted women the vote with an amendment to the Constitution. But it wasn't just the vote. Women were now socially liberated. They were dancing, going to these jazz clubs, um, drinking, speakeasies. They were liberated. They felt free. And the Klan thought this was a huge threat to the purity of American womanhood and the virtuousness. Now, to your point about um, about average people, this is one of the things that astonished me. I think the average American's view of the Klan is a bunch of, you know, so-called rubes, you know, living in darkened caves or basements in the South and spreading terror. The Klan of the 20s was almost a Mayberry Klan, although I don't like that term because they were actually violent, too. But they were average people, and it cost a fair amount of money. It cost a day's wages to join the Klan. So they were bankers, merchants, preachers, teachers, coaches, the people who held their community together, and they were in the North. They were primarily in the Midwest and the North. And why is that? What happened in the South? Did they ignore this change, this rebirth of the Klan? Well, uh, let me just back up for one second. There was a huge demonstration of the Klan in 1925 in Washington, D.C., and they marched from the Capitol to the Treasury Building, 50,000 strong. It just astonished reporters. So they, they, they did all these interviews with these Klansmen and Klanswomen, because they had a women's brigade, and Klan kiddies. They also had a children's brigade called the Ku Klux Kitties. And, and the reporters uh, were all boys and a, and a separate one for girls. Exactly. So little 9- and 10- and 11-year-old kids would don their robes and their hoods and go into their little dens and you know learn how to hate their fellow Americans. But uh, my point was that... The, what reporters discovered in that 1925 demonstration in D.C. was that, oh, my God, these were not Southerners. These were people from upstate New York, western Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Colorado, which had a Klan governor, duly elected open Klansman, who in 1924, his slogan was, every man under the Capitol Dome, a Klansman. So, yeah, they were they were not. Now, what happened? It was because the North, these mostly white Protestant people felt threatened by the others, felt fear of replacement, thought this changing, churning America of 100 years ago was going to threaten the perception of uh, you know, gentility and tranquility that pervaded in all these towns in the North. So what sorts of things were they doing? Were they uh, returning to the old Klan uh, approach of raids, beatings, lynchings, arson? 
That's the great. That's a great question because that's the dichotomy of this Norman Rockwellian clan of the twenties. And you know, my story is about a monster named DC Stevenson, who was the grand. Which dragon. we will get to in just a moment. Okay, okay. but I was going to say that's that's you know, on the surface, they were sanctified from the you know pulpits of Protestant churches. And that's an important consideration. They had the blessing of God behind them, so they couldn't be a terror group. And on the surface, they were the normal folks who held their communities together. And everybody knew a Klansman, especially in Indiana. If you were not a Klansman, you were nobody. But beneath that, they were still about terror. They ran an entire community of blacks out of town on three hours notice in a little town in Indiana one day in 1924. They firebranded and burned on the forehead the KKK symbols on the forehead, I'm sorry, of African-Americans in their strongholds in the South. They lynched a man in Indiana. They set off bombs and shot at, you know, Catholic clergy and nuns. So yeah, on the surface, they were all, you know, kind of Rockwellian, but beneath it, this terror was still part of their toolkit. So let's talk about the man you just mentioned, uh, David Curtis Stevenson, who was a newspaper man and a petty criminal. You describe him in the book as bluff and ignorant, a manipulator, a liar, a vicious sexual predator. Sounds to me like a born leader. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. More, are you a cynic? Uh, <laughs> He, well, he I'm looking at some of the politicians who are out there today. Right. <laughs> uh, Leonard, he was a classic American archetype. I call him a music man of hate. He rolled into town um, a drifter with no background, you know, having bounced around from town to town and remade himself in four short years to the most powerful political figure in the heartland. He controlled a clan dynasty of 21 states and probably 4 million Klansmen. He had his eyes on the White House. He, he controlled the largest empire of the clan the world had ever seen. One in three, one in three white males in Indiana put their hand on that Bible and swore an oath to white supremacy. And he was a charmer. He was a con man. He said what people wanted to hear. He played to their fears. He talked about this replacement theory that Jews are coming to replace them, that blacks are moving north, that women are outside of the home. Look at them dancing in those dance clubs. But beneath that, he was an alcoholic, a bootlegger, a sexual predator, and ultimately a murderer. Well, then how did he rise to the point where he could play a major role in the growth of the Klan in Indiana? Well, was it even from I'll, Indiana? Yeah, I'll just go there. He was a very Trumpian figure. Uh, and it, it's Trump's famous statement, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and never lose a follower. Even while this guy was on trial, this Grand Dragon was on trial for murder. Many rape, years later. Yeah. He passed a slate, you know, of Klansmen who, who won office. So, you know, what he did is he, he just, most people didn't know about his dark side. That only came out later. But what they knew of him was that he said all the things they he, he played to their fears. It wasn't their failures as human beings that they were leading miserable lives. It was other people's faults. And he really he just he, he, he lied five ways before noon. And so he just had this really gifted con man like quality to play to people's fears, to say the things they wanted to hear. And he was called Steve. Was that a, a, a show of affection? Yeah, he, he wanted people to think of him as sort of, the, you know, even though he was only 33 years old, he, in some ways he was kind of a Wizard of Oz. I mean, you know, get away from that screen. I have a chapter in the book where it's the largest Klan rally in the history of the Klan. 200,000 people turn out in the cornfields outside of Kokomo, Indiana, and Steve drops down from the sky in his private clan airplane with the KKK letters underneath it. And he gets out of the plane with his you know, purple flowing robe and he greets all his subjects. And they, his top aide said, you know, if he'd have told them to lift their arms and try to fly, they all would have tried to fly. He had absolute control over them. So yeah, he played this sort of avuncular, he wanted people also to call him the old man, this avuncular, likable, you know, your friendly guy, at, but he was just absolutely ruthless. Well, he also boasted at one point, I am the law. Well, that's the amazing thing. And, and, and that's not a hidden thing. He, he, he said that in public. He said, I am the law. And you know why he said that? Because he'd, he's, during this time when he was Grand Dragon, leading up to the climax of this book, 
he raped several women. He attempted to sexual assault several women and nothing ever came of it. And since he saw he could get and he was a bootlegger, too, he used to throw these debauched, wild parties at his mansion in Irvington, Indiana, where naked women would pop out of a cake and he would assign women to different judges and influential people. So he, he did say, I am the law. And he pretty much proved it, too. And in that sense, it made people admire him because anybody who had no bottom to his shame, and that was the key to his power, he had no bottom. He would go there where other people wouldn't go, and then he would get away with it. So there was there was a certain segment of the population that admired that. I'm speaking with Timothy Egan, whose latest book, this is your 10th, I think? Is yes, thank you. It is my 10th. Mm-hmm. A Fever in the Heartland, the Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America and the Woman Who Stopped Them, published by Viking. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org. And you pointed out that um, he took charge of Klan recruiting efforts across the Midwest and named Grand Dragon of the Realm of Indiana in 1923. Why Indiana in particular? You know, Indiana is the quintessential American state, supposedly. When you ask people about Americana, they think of Indiana, not just the dead center of the country. But I think the reason the Klan took off so quickly there now, one of Lincoln's generals had complained during the Civil War that it was the most southern of northern states because it was it had been settled by people from the south. And they there were, there were a lot of southern sentiment. Um, but it was also overwhelmingly white and Protestant. And it had the highest percentage by one estimate of white Protestants, something like 92 percent. Only less than one percent of the population was Jewish. But yet they would have these huge rallies where Klan men and Klan's women would, would urge boycotting of Jewish shops and say, we're going to shut down all the Jews in the state. When we drive them out, only then will Indiana be pure. Their African-American population was quite small as well. But they said they're coming here from the north. They're, they're opening all these speakeasies along this black section in Indianapolis, and they're, they're a threat to women. So I think it's the fact that it was so homogenous and everyone sort of reinforced each other's values that it made it a perfect place to plant what was sort of viewed as a fraternal club during the golden age of these fraternal societies, the Elks and the Oddfellows and all of that. And you point out that he wound up controlling the Klan in 21 states. Um, Didn't he study Mussolini's speeches and describe himself as the world's foremost mass psychologist? Yeah. Boy, delusions of grandeur. Or maybe he really uh, had that kind of grandstanding. I think he believed it. I I don't think he believed too many of the things he preached, but I think he believed in his power. And he was a guy who never made any money until he got into the Klan. They thought, this is a racket. This is a racket. And by the end of his four years of domination, he'd gone from a nobody from nowhere, as he himself called himself, to being a guy who was not only the most powerful man in the Midwest, but he's worth upwards of 28 million bucks in modern dollars. He had a 98-foot yacht. He had a Klan Airplane. He had the largest mansion in Irvington, Indiana, a really nice neighborhood. So it was a racket. He could make money off these people. And that in that sense, that's why he was the you know, classic American con man who rolls into town and says the things that people want to hear. And you mentioned earlier that he considered running for president. Well was it did anybody this, take that seriously? I people who, you know, I when I started researching this book, I had my doubts about this, but I'll tell you something really interesting. In the 1924 political conventions of both the Democrats and the Republicans, the Ku Klux Klan was so influential at both those conventions that Time magazine put the imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan on its cover and wrote a largely positive story talking about how powerful they were. Both of those major parties could not pass a simple resolution condemning Klan values. Now, blacks and Catholics and Jews had urged the parties to do this. The blacks actually broke from the Republican Party after being, you know, the most loyal bloc they had for 50 years over this issue. So Stevenson's plan after the 24 convention was, my God, four years from now, he's going to run for office because he had his eye on a Senate seat, which the Klan governor would have appointed him to. Well, Klan members fill positions at every level of government. Um, 
1924, Congress was filled with Klan members, wasn't it? So there was a Klan office in D.C., six blocks from the White House, that had 60, six zero paid staffers. And the Klan would hold these regular meetings of people who actually wore the hoods and robes and were also members of Congress. So they had taken dual oaths, essentially, one in contradiction of the other. Leonard, there were four sworn Klansmen serving as United States senators during the 1920s. There were at least three sworn Klansmen who got elected openly as Klansmen, as governors, and governors in the North, Colorado, Oregon, and Indiana. And among the 75 members of Congress who were in their sway, at least half of those people were sworn Klansmen. So uh, anyone who dismisses the Klan of the 20s as a sort of, you know, bond of of white brothers, you know, enacting silly rituals in a basement does not understand the degree of their power. Did they also play a role in the passage of the National Origins Act to to limit immigration? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's one of the lasting impacts and legacies of the Ku Klux Klan of the 20s. The Origins Act of 1924 essentially closed the door to Jews from coming into this country. And and people from from, uh, the south of Europe because they didn't want these uh, Sicilians coming either. That's right. And I was going to say that. Also, it expanded the restrictions on Asians who already had an incredibly difficult time coming into this country, and it made it impossible for Africans to come. So they just pretty much ran the gamut so that the origin was 1890. They wanted America to look like what it did in 1890. That's what the law was based on, number of Americans of ethnic origin in 1890. But here's the here's the that law was on the books for 50 years, and that was the Klan's top goal of the 1920s. Now, they got prohibition. That was their other goal. They hated alcohol because they thought it was the social lubricant that held immigrant communities together. And in some ways it was, especially the Irish. So their top goal, the National Origins Act, stayed around for 50 years. And some scholars have speculated that up to 2 million Jews who otherwise would have been killed, excuse me, were killed by Hitler, could have possibly gotten into this country had not they passed the 1924 act. Uh, Klan vigilantes uh, had morality patrols. They uh, allied with the eugenics movement to pass the the nation's first forced sterilization law. Yeah, the first forced sterilization law was passed in Indiana, and thereafter, 30 states modeled themselves, uh, passed laws after it. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Americans had their right and ability to ever have children taken away from them involuntarily because they were people with epilepsy. Um, they were so-called promiscuous women. They were gays. They were sort of undesirables who would be brought into these kangaroo courts, declared you know, uh, unfit to have children, and then they were sterilized. And I don't ever like to play the Nazi card because I think it destroys all discussion immediately. But I will tell you this historical fact. When the Nazis took hold in 1930, they openly modeled their eugenics laws. They said, mm-hmm. after the ones plas- passed in America, which were part of the Klan's design. Still, weren't there journalists, lawyers, and black and Jewish leaders who opposed the Klan despite being threatened constantly? Yeah, there was a good amount of I don't know if resistance. they received letters with white powder in them, as, as, as uh, right. people do today. Well, you know, they... There, there were a good amount of resistors, and they started this newspaper called Tolerance. It was run by Jews, blacks, and largely Irish Americans. And it was this one fiery Irish American lawyer, Patrick O'Donnell. And what they did is they published once a week in, in the newspaper Tolerance the list of all the Klan members in a certain community. They had sources inside that would give them. Remember, they were called the Invisible Empire. It was a secret society. Mm. But what Tolerance did was printed the names. And they thought, this will shame these bastards. This will show them. This will show people who's wearing a mask in their community. They called it Who's Who in Nightgowns. But the opposite happened. Instead of shaming them, it was validating. So people would look at this list of thousands of Klansmen in their communities and they say, oh, well, I know that guy. That's my banker. Oh, there's the guy who delivers the meat to my house once a week. Oh, there's my milkman. Oh, there's the postal worker. Oh, there's, you know, so you felt like if you didn't join, you were missing out on something. So it completely, the initial act of the resistors, that being the newspaper tolerance, completely backfired. 
And Stevenson had the support of people in power. One politician said efforts to bring him to justice was a hoax and a witch hunt. Hoax, witch hunt, and a smear. Uh, those very words were used not by not just by his supporters, and he had many Klan newspapers in his pocket. Um, I want to say editors were as guilty of this as others were, but also Stevenson himself. Uh, he would tell reporters, you know, it's all a hoax and a witch hunt. They're, my enemies are out to get me. This was after he was charged with rape, murder, and kidnapping. Well, well wasn't there also infighting within the Klan that at times uh, imperiled Stevenson's position? Yeah. So this was such a big money-making racket. You know, it's, it's a shameful, well, it's a hard thing to say. But no one ever went broke on the renewable energy of hatred in this country. And Stevenson proved it. They made so much money. So just to join the Klan, this is why middle class people were mostly the, the Klansmen. Just to join the Klan cost at least the equivalent of a day's wages. For some people, it would be a week's wages. So it was not cheap, but it was great on the other end. And then the Klan made money off the uniforms, which you could only buy through these Klan outlets. So the, the infighting was all about the spoils. And, you know, they, they both, the two major guys who fought, Stevenson and the Imperial Wizard Hiram Evans, the guy who was on the cover of Time, they didn't really fight over goals. They're, they're, they both had the same goal, which is to take over America and then change the Constitution to make this a Christian nationalist country. They wanted to have one religion be the, the religion of the, of the state. Um, their goal, their fighting was over the spoils, over the money. You write that by 1925, I'm quoting, one in three native-born white males wore the sheets, and, and then that Stevenson effectively ran Indiana, controlling the governor, both houses of the state legislature, and a private police force of 30,000 men, which he utilized to harass violators of Klan-certified virtue. W yeah, was so this it, happening just in Indiana? No. Ohio was the second biggest state. They had 200,000 Klansmen. They had a Klan governor, excuse me, a Klan mayor in Youngston, and they had a Klan governor, a Democrat, who was on board Stevenson's yacht while they plotted the future. Uh, they burned you know, crosses all over Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, Western PA. They, they went into the home of an Italian immigrant who would later become Dean Martin, Steubenville. And, you know, nearly burned the town down. So they were all I, I want to mention real quickly the, um, the the Taliban like morality patrols. That's what it, it reminded me of was the Taliban. They would go into these um, Jewish retailers shops on Sunday and close them down. How dare they be open on Sunday? They would go out at night with flashlights and guns looking for parked cars to break up young people kissing together at night, necking. Um, they would go into speakeasies and smash them because how dare these women be out at night, you know, dancing, you know, wildly to this black music of jazz. So they were they were morality patrols, um, and again, led by a guy who was an absolutely amoral monster. And even though they were for prohibition, as we'll get to later, uh, alcohol was not unknown in his home. <laughs> Talk about an understatement. <laughs> he was a raging alcoholic. He had the finest liquor, mostly from the cops, uh, that anyone could get in the state of Indiana. It was endless. And uh, he was also bootlegger. He had his own racket on the side. He made money off of everything when he ran the state. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Oh, I got a fear inside me Call it the KKK Well, they beat up on my woman Found her lying in a field of hay up on my woman I found a lion in a field of hay I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Timothy Egan. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, 
you can receive a free copy of his book, A Fever in the Heartland, The Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America and the Woman Who Stopped Them. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. We thank you very much. In return to Timothy Egan, whose latest book is A Fever in the Heartland, The Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America and the Woman Who Stopped Them from Viking. He's a former New York Times op-ed columnist, uh, and he uh, has won the Pulitzer Prize and also uh, his, one of his books on the Dust Bowl, the, the Worst Hard Time, won the National Book Award. Um, <laughs> and and uh, I assume this this one is up for an award as well. Now, <laughs> yeah, um, sorry. you write that for a startlingly large number of Americans, the Klan gave meaning, shape, and purpose to the days. Uh, when they went to uh, events, banners proclaimed that America is for Americans, floats portrayed Klansmen defending women from black people and Catholics. Yeah, so one of the hard things to do in this book, and I wrote it sort of as a, I tried to write a fairly tight narrative about this monster and who would have stopped him, but one of the things, my themes I tried to, or one of the questions I tried to answer is, is the tactile question, the how and the why. How, how and the why and the, how, how was Americana used to spread such awful hate? And um, Is it a matter thing, of us against them, simply? Yeah, that, that was part of it. And the, what you just quoted, Leonard, is, was part of it, that it, it, it gave shape to a chaotic time. It gave a narrative form to change that they didn't like and didn't understand. They, they didn't like modernity. <laughs> they didn't like the way the world was changing so fast, especially among women and blacks moving north. So this the Klan gave them a story. The Klan gave them order in their lives. It gave them shape. It gave them you know something to, something to live for. Now, they didn't have a Fox News of the day, but what they had, the Klan, the National Klan newspaper had a larger subscription than the New York Times. And the Klan Indiana newspaper, the Fiery Cross, had a subscription base of 300,000 people. So they, they had a Klan press that they could follow. They also had, they called them poison squads, where the Klan was very proud of this. They would plant a lie or a rumor at noon, say, you know, some gentleman who lives down the street, some retailer is Jewish and must be stopped. And by the end of the day, they say that rumor could travel to all corners of the state. They, they were formally called poison squads. Hmm. And the job of these poison squads was they were mainly spread by women, as they called them, clucks and gossips, was to um, use disinformation to destroy people. And uh, as a result, it was possible to do your shopping at Klan-approved stores. You say that you could cook Klan-approved recipes and as you mentioned earlier, enroll your sons in the junior KKK and your daughters in the Tri-K Club <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, that which they, was, the daughters I, I saw different. high school yearbooks right next to the debate society was, you know, the, the junior, the high school Klan club. Uh, and what, they separated the boys from the girls out of a sense of morality? Yes, out of a sense of morality, because sexual purity was one of the things they promoted. So the trade thing you mentioned, they would give out little stickers. The sticker said TWK, trade with Klan. Mm. And you put one of those stickers on the window of your shop, and it meant that you were a Klan-approved retailer. And there were thousands of these things all over the Midwest that people would look, and they, they would have these huge rallies. I mean, 20, 30, 40,000 people. And they would say, always look for the TWK sticker. Um, and it was a way to boycott those who were not not Klan members. And yet that morality didn't stop Stevenson from throwing parties at his mansion and on his 98-foot yacht that one associate said would have shamed Nero. And, yeah, and as we mentioned earlier, this is during Prohibition, which the Klan had played a role in getting enacted. Well, not only played a role, uh, a lot of scholars believe that the Klan would not have been born in the 20s without prohibition. They worked hand in glove 
with the largest lobbying group for prohibition. That was the Anti-Saloon League. Now, prohibition, which Winston Churchill called an affront to the entire history of mankind, mm-hmm. um, was a huge victory for them, a huge victory. And it was an enormous social experiment. And the, from the Klan's point of view, it was not because they wanted to um, stop people from drinking. I mean, I think they really cared about that much, but they wanted to go after the immigrants who were making wine and the immigrants like the Irish who were drinking in the pubs. And they thought when African-Americans drank, they became sexual predators. So they had all these tropes about what alcohol did to their to their enemies. But yeah, they um, at the same time, they promoted all this virtue. They just did the, and this is common today too. You just see this, they, they do the exact opposite of what they promoted. Stevenson's parties featured, you know, they were just utterly debauched. I mean, I said they were bacchanals of bad taste. They were at this giant mansion with music playing, but naked women would pop out of cakes. And like I said earlier, he would assign women to certain, you know, distinguished men. And uh, yeah, his top aide who spilled all later, you had that wonderful quote where he said these parties would have shamed Nero. Well, although the Klan claimed that one of its goals was stamping out licentiousness, Stevenson yes. raped any number of women. You know, he was a sexual predator. He was a, he was an absolute monster. And um, the shameful thing is uh, that, he, that he almost completely got away with it. Uh, he had this as I saw him as sort of a metaphor, a stand in for how dark, you know, many Americans hearts went during the 20s. He got progressively worse. He started out as a person who just ditched his wife right after she got pregnant in Oklahoma and acted like he had no wife and then just took up, shacked up with other women, as they used to call it back then. But as time went on, he got more and more monstrous. He got more and more ugly. He got more, he became more predatory and more violent. And he actually, I don't want to trigger your audience here, but he, you know, he started chewing on people. He was not only a rapist, but he would gnaw at their flesh. And his power remained unchecked until he kidnapped and raped a Department of Public Instruction employee named Madge Oberholtz in, in 1925, the, the the woman in the title of your book. Yeah, so let me just set the stage for you, if I could. Please. A, a lot of institutions and a lot of groups took a swing at Stevenson. The NAACP came to town, and their charismatic leader, James Weldon Johnson, who was a big part of the Harlem Renaissance, uh, had written a letter to Calvin Coolidge, the president, and said, if you do not denounce what has happened to the Republican Party in the state of Indiana, which there was an outright Klan republic, then we will bolt. We will bolt. And they did bolt. It was the first time that a lo- the largest and most loyal block of voters to the Republican Party after 50 years bolted and became Democrats. And they never went back. But the but they- Democrats were, uh, for a long time, the, the party of segregation, the Southern Democrats. Absolutely. Uh, that all changed only in the, in the 60s. Well, no. What happened was they went over to FDR's side. They liked oh, okay. FDR. And so that was, a, that was the sea change. But yes, I want to state for the record, the Democrats were thick with Klansmen, especially in the South, where it was a majority Democratic Party and it was all white. And it was majority Klan in many places. What the NAACP did was say, we're bolting, but we're going to sit in the middle for a while. They sat in the middle for a while and they ultimately went over um, to the Democrats under the banner of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So let's talk a bit about what happened with Madge Oberholzer. Um, yeah. So I, I'm sorry. I started to set the stage. I just wanted to say everyone had tried to bring these guys down and they'd all failed. Mm-hmm. But it fell to this one woman who had no power, who was just a school teacher, a single woman of age, age 28, living at home with her parents, six blocks away from Stevenson's mansion in Irvington, Indiana. And her job as a in a state literacy program was on the chopping block. State was going to get rid of it. And she thought the only way to save her job was to go to the man who controlled the state. He had a boiler room operation. No bill passed in the Indiana legislature without getting past the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. So they started, he asked her out a couple of times. He sort of toyed with her and said, well, maybe I can save your job, but will you see me? So that was the start of these two, I say, great two forces meeting. Considering how important and famous he was at the time, are you surprised by how few people probably recognize that name today? 
Well, in Indiana, it was a household name for so long. I, but to answer your question, I'm absolutely surprised because this – now, I don't want to tell your listeners what happens, but ultimately there's a trial. And well, first, Maddie, how did she die? Yeah, well, I, you want me to say that? Uh, okay, she I'll she took bichloride of mercury? Uh, was well, that what happened was that Stevenson kidnapped her and hmm. put her on, took her on a train to Chicago, and he raped her. And he salted her so viciously with her teeth that she was left in these horrible wounds and this distress. She thought she was going to die and bring shame to her family. So she took um, some poison and uh, she lingered for 28 days. She ultimately did die. But she but dictated a full account of what he had done to her. Yeah. Again, I don't, I'm not going to spoil, give away the whole book here, but she, her words from beyond the grave were instrumental in this trial that finally, finally showed the rest of America what this guy was like. But to your earlier question about the household name, the Scopes Monkey trial happened in the same year, 1925. The Stevenson trial was a sensation. All the major papers across the country covered it. It was banner, headline, front page news all over the Midwest. Stevenson was a a very well-known name. He's been completely forgotten partially because of American amnesia. We tend to forget these awful parts of our past and we're afraid to teach them in many states right now, partially because it brings so much shame to the state that Stevenson took over. But, you know, it's there. That story is there in the archives. You you cannot open a newspaper from the 1920s and not see the word D.C. Stevenson. So when his name appeared on front pages of all newspapers all across the country, what happened with Klan members? I, I'm assuming many were disillusioned, but I'm yeah, sure judging so, from what I see today with certain politicians, some people remain loyal to the bitter end. Isn't that amazing? Um, it's, it's a phenomenon that happened 100 years ago, and it's, it's happening today. No matter how awful the human being, people think there's a greater cause at stake. So, so initially... When, when this monster, this leader of the Klan was, tra- was, was charged with rape, kidnapping, and murder, uh, and he called it a smear and a hoax, before the trial started, they had another election in Indiana. And he had a Klansman running for mayor of the largest city in the state of Indiana. And he sent out his goons to ensure that everyone would vote for the Klan. And he sent out the message that, you know, vote the Klan slate. And while he was awaiting trial in November of 1925, they voted up and down without exception for the Klan slate. It took the trial itself. Now, the first thing was before the trial. It took the trial itself and the revelations that Madge Oberholzer brought forth to finally, finally show people the true heart of the monster who ran their state. And Stevenson was convicted of second-degree murder, uh, not first, uh, sentenced to life in prison. He spent 31 years in prison. Uh, He complained the whole time that he compared himself to Jesus. He said it was the biggest— That sounds familiar also, doesn't it? It really does. (laughs) Some some things get repeated again and again. We have a politician today who just compared himself to Jesus. um, History doesn't necessarily repeat itself. It rhymes. Wasn't that the saying I think (laughs) I heard somewhere? You know, and this vein just runs under our country and it rises and falls. He compared himself to Jesus. He compared himself to the he said he was the most persecuted man in the history of our country. He filed thousands of appeals. None of them ever overturned the verdict of the trial. Now, he serves 31 years. And when he gets out, he's 70 years old. One of the first things he does is he sexually assaults a 16 year old. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah. He uh, he sexually assaulted a 16-year-old girl. Now, yes. He uh, and and was he arrested for that? Yeah, but they thought he was too old and they so mm. they this was in the state of Missouri and they said uh, they had a sort of half-assed trial and they said, "Look, we're going to let you go because of your age and on the condition that you never set foot in the state of Missouri again." Now, why have you called your book A Fever in the Heartland? 
is that a title that you came up with, or is that something that uh, is is part of the record? So it's my title. You'll have to either blame me or praise me. Or no, so I like it. I just was wondering whether <laughs> somebody at the time said, there's a fever in the heartland. No, you know, I'll tell you, we went back and forth at my publishing house about this title because we, we debated whether this was a fever. Now, you know, when you have a fever, it rises and then it ultimately falls, hmm. whether it's a fever or a condition. And I called it a fever because it never the clan hatred had never burned so hot and so public and was so popular at this time. And the, the this great crusading editor, a guy named George Dale of Muncie, Indiana, who was thrown in jail by a clan judge for criticizing him. He wasn't even given a trial. The First Amendment didn't even apply in Muncie, Indiana. This clan judge just threw this crusading news, little newspaper guy only five foot two and 98 pounds in jail Hmm. um he called it a fever and he said as after stevenson was convicted he said i think at long last this fever has passed do you think that if stevenson hadn't raped her or if the uh the situation hadn't become well known that the clan would have continued to thrive it's a great question because most historians believe that the Stevenson trial, the, one of the premier clan historians at the time said that this is what extinguished, you know, the, the burning flames of the clan of the 1920s, that the actually the, the murder and lynching of Leo Frank in Atlanta, a Jewish person who was lynched by a mob and is the subject of a play on Broadway right now um, called The Parade, I think, or Par- Parade, yeah. That started, that helped to launch the Klan in 1915, and this trial was what extinguished it. But to your question, had Stevenson not been convicted, you know, I think they would have continued to rise. The Klan guy who was on the cover of Time magazine, Hiram Wesley Evans, said they were on a path to reach 20 million Americans. Now, that would have been almost one-fourth of the country. So we're talking about the 20s. But did it really ever die? Because what didn't a third manifestation of the Klan form in the second half of the 1900s, uh, yeah, largely so in reaction clan, to the civil rights movement? Right. But the 20s Klan completely cratered. And there was a, several other scandals like the Stevenson scandal, not quite on this level, but that just showed what depraved individuals they were. You know, they were rapists, they were child molesters, they were, they were, a lot of them were thrown in jail for awful crimes, and that showed the people. So they cratered. However, they did get most of what they wanted. Don't forget that. They got Prohibition, they got the Immigration Act, they got Jim Crow in the North. Um, then it reappears in, this, in a reaction to the Civil Rights Act. And it wasn't nearly, it wasn't a thread as popular as it was in the 20s, but it was violent, and it was terrorist, and it had to be crushed by the feds, ultimately. But I've read recently that as of 2016, the Anti-Defamation League put total Ku Klux Klan membership nationwide at around 3,000. The Southern Poverty Law Center put it at 6,000 members. So well, that's, there's still yeah. people out there. No, Yeah, that's interesting perspective on it, because if you say you're a Klansman now, you proclaim yourself a Klansman, it's generally toxic. Now, we did have that Tiki Torch march where they said the exact same things that the Klan used to say in the 20s. That is replacement theory. Jews will not replace us, that sort of thing. But Klan, it's, if someone were to go before a microphone as a politician today and proclaim themselves a proud Klansman as they did in the 20s, they wouldn't get anywhere, hopefully. In the 20s, you'd do that and you'd get votes. So that that shows I, mean, I want to offer some hope that shows we have changed. You know, there are people splinter- are putting on hoods and, and sheets. Uh, except uh, at costume parties. Right. And also, but there is this caveat, and I think you know this, you may have referenced this or not. Uh, just a few weeks ago, the ADL put out its annual report on hate crimes against Jews and anti-Semitism, they said, as evidenced by these crimes, is as high in America as it's been since they started keeping track uh, in the 1970s. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, people aren't donning sheets and hoods and and putting their hand on the Bible and proclaiming white supremacy. But we've certainly got a lot of this vein that that was so flared, so hot in the 20s is around still. Uh, do you feel that you have alerted people to this, this strain in America that uh, never seems to go away because— 
the reviews I've read so far have all been incredibly glowing. Yeah, thank you. I've been very lucky. I, I didn't know how people were going to embrace this book because it's a dark story. Um, maybe Ron DeSantis will ban it in Florida because mm-hmm. it's... Um, if you're lucky. As, as I was writing this book, I, we were starting to see this debate uh, about how to teach our history. And a book like this can be shameful, but it also can be, you know, a, a blueprint for how to beat the bad guys. It can also be a blueprint for how to recognize this kind of hate. But, you know, if it makes people feel ashamed of, uh, of our history, it'll, it'll probably be banned from, school, from schools in many parts of uh, the country. Timothy Egan's A Fever in the Heartland, The Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America and the Woman Who Stopped Them is published by Viking. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Is there anything you want to add before you say goodbye? No, I just uh, thank you again for your interest in this book. I, I um, just heard today, and the book's only been out for a week, that it made the New York Times bestseller list, which is heartening, at least in that, to your question about are, are Americans willing to accept the story? And um, that shows that a fair amount of people are. So I'm grateful for that. And good luck with it. Thank you again. Thank you, Leonard. I appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you and the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners to have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with um, by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. Uh, That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2 WBAI.org. Right now, we are going through a rough time, uh, still suffering from the fallout from the pandemic. And we need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content. Information you usually don't get anywhere else, or not at least in the depth that we bring it to you. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, A Fever in the Heartland, The Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America, and The Woman Who Stopped Them by Timothy Egan. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month, however much you feel comfortable doing, uh, and as long as you feel like doing it. And we'll say thank you. With the WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, we hope you call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants. We're the only station on the New York radio dial that relies 100% on listener support. It is tax deductible. We hope you'll give, give us that call one more time. 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org give in the number 2 WBAI.org and we hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be Julie Sook discussing her new book After Misogyny we'll see you then